Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey folks, this episode of Other People is brought to you by Stitcher Smart Radio. You can hear other people while on the go with Stitcher Smart Radio, a free news and talk mobile app available for your smartphone. And when you download Stitcher to hear other people, you have a chance to win some money. Downloading is quick and easy. Just find Stitcher in the App Store, download it. It's free. It takes just a second of your time, possibly like 30 seconds. Then uh, when you register, hit the promo code box. It should say, tell us how you heard about Stitcher. Where it says that, enter other people. All one word. And spell out people. O-T-H-E-R-P-E-O-P-L-E. And when you do that... You're automatically entered to win 100 bucks. It's that simple. The latest episode of this program will then be waiting for you in your favorites, and you'll get access to lots of other amazing content as well, always available on demand without syncing. That's the Stitcher app. Go get it. Get it at the App Store. Get it at Stitcher.com. Available for your iPhone, your Android, your tablet computer. And don't forget to enter the promo code other people when you register. This is an app. You can apply it. Go and get it. Oh my God. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. Right. Okay, right. everybody, here we go again. This is it. This is other people. This is me trying to think of something to say. This is you not saying much of anything. How's it going? How are you today? Don't answer that. I'm Brad Listy. It's good to be with you. I'm in Los Angeles, as I usually am, slash as I always have been every time I've done this show. My guest today is Tom Barbash. His critically acclaimed story collection entitled Stay Up With Me is now out there in paperback from Echo, so pick that up. It's great to have Tom here. He and I are going to be talking in just a minute. And, uh, you know, I was thinking, this is unrelated. This is just me going off on a tangent. I was thinking the other day, I've been thinking recently, kind of uh, assembling thoughts for a possible essay or something, if I can find the time to write it, regarding uh, competitive nature, the value placed on competitive nature in American life, and, and maybe more broadly speaking in human life in general, how we celebrate winners, what it takes to win, what winning means. These are preoccupations of mine. And it, what it, you know, it, what it really stems from 
is, you know, I'm a sports fan. I grew up watching sports. I still watch some sports. I read about sports you know, to sort of relax myself. And uh, you, you read about these great athletes, these great champions. And, you know, you, you read the, uh, the story the morning after the game and the stories about the game. But then eventually, you know, out comes a uh, memoir or some sort of book about the athlete. You get a little bit more of an in-depth look. And what you find consistently is a sort of mania in these people with winning, with doing whatever it takes to beat the other person and like this kind of crazy attitude they have. Like, you know, you'll read about uh, great quarterbacks or great basketball players and they'll be like, you know, it's not just on the field of uh, play in their particular sport that they have this com- you know competitive thing. They could be playing anything. They could be playing Monopoly. They could be playing ping pong. Yahtzee. They have to win. And uh, we generally celebrate this sort of behavior. We think this is like a a great thing. That's how it's kind of written about. But when I read it, I find myself feeling very uncomfortable. You know, reading about a grown man who happens to be a really good football player who... Uh, when he's losing, you know, a, a game of like connect four winds up like flying into a rage and throwing the connect four game against the wall and like shattering it. Like that's not, that's not good. <laughs> and, you know, then there's this thing and, you know, this is where I've gotten into trouble in the past where it's like trying to evaluate my own uh, thing, my own competitive spirit. Because I think we all have something to that effect within us. And I, I've often characterized myself as not being a competitive person. Which is maybe to my detriment. You know, I take no joy in beating other people. But there can also be some sort of passive-aggressive thing in there. Where you, you, know, you say that you know, you're not competitive as a way of elevating yourself over those who are. Which, when you think about it, is uh, kind of a, a subterranean way of being competitive. It's ironic. I mean, they're like, do I really want to beat people? And then people are like, oh, I'm not competitive with others. I'm just competitive with myself. I sort of get that. You know, that's, that's probably a better way to be. But is it the whole truth? What did Gore Vidal say? You know, envy is the uh, ultimate fact of American life. People measuring themselves against other people. doesn't matter what it is. And of course you see this in the literary world. So if somebody has enough success, it's a guarantee that people will start taking shots at them. Anybody with a, a, you know, a social media feed knows that. Especially if the person is outspoken. You know, or is newsy in any way. It's going to happen. So, you know, I don't have any answers. I just have questions. I'm just fascinated by this. I don't, I don't understand it. And that's why, uh, I think I want to write about it, which is probably healthy. So if you know stuff about uh, competitive nature in human beings, if you've done research, if you're a behavioral scientist, if you can, uh, shed some light on this and explain it to me, like, is it a pathology? That's what I want to know. What's the, what's the pr- uh, appropriate way to be? What's the healthy mode? Like I can tell you this, like I want, for example, 
I want this podcast to be successful. I want people to hear it. I want people to enjoy uh, listening to it. But you, you want to know the truth? I, uh, I don't even keep track of uh, what's going on with other podcasts. I don't sit around like obsessively measuring the rankings or anything. I don't. Maybe I should. You know? Like you look at uh like I look at a guy like Howard Stern. I love listening to Stern. I came to him a little bit later. I mean, I heard him when I was a kid, but it wasn't until I was an adult and he was kind of grown up a bit more in his career that I started to get into him and, and especially on Sirius where he's untethered by any kind of FC street, uh, FCC restrictions. I think it's a really great show. But, you know, he's uh, he's got that self-promoter thing. That chest-thumping thing. Talks about how great he is. And, and yeah, it's tongue-in-cheek, you know, the king of all media or whatever. There's, it's a half joke, but uh, is that what you got to do as a writer? To get noticed? You got to thump your own chest and call yourself great and pick fights with people and... Holy shit, fuck that. I can't do it. You know, I don't have it. I don't think I have it. Do you have to have that? That's what I want to know. Can somebody tell me if you have to have that? Because that would be helpful for me and maybe for you. Is anyone else out there nodding their head as I say this? Hey, everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing, it's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Anyway, my guest, once again, is Tom Barbash. His story collections stay up with me, uh, out there now from Echo and Paperback. Very pleased to have him here. We had a great talk, and I, I hope you guys enjoy it. This is Tom Barbash, and once again, his story collection is called Stay Up With Me. When I try to give people a, a, an idea of how I grew up, I tell them to think about Halloween, and I'd say on Halloween we went trick or treating. We'd go to the eighth floor, then the fourth floor, then the fifteenth floor, you know. And that was the elevator was where you saw your neighbors, and so that's my sense of community came from a, a building, living in an apartment building, and and it was a strong one. I mean, I, I knew everybody and kept up with everybody. It was a, it, it felt like that's the way everybody grew up because everybody I knew grew up that way, but, and nature was Central Park, um, which was Wait, did down you, the block. Did you, I was going to say, did you live in like one of those buildings that looks out like on Central Park West that looked out on the park or? Yeah, we, you know, we're, we're across this, we were across the street from the Museum of Natural History and our, you know, we were on the 17th floor 
and the Natural History Museum is about four or five floors, so you would have that incredible view straight across where you could see across the park. And um, Because ours, our row of buildings on 77th, although on, behind us on 76th and 75th, it's all brownstones. So, yeah, we, we kind of had a panoramic view you know, around just because our block was the, was, the building of, was the block of taller buildings. Oh, man. That sounds nice. Yeah, it was great. That's a good one. I mean, because I was in I was in New York uh, last Christmas, and it was like this weird like string of warm days. And I got on a bike, uh, one of those like city bikes. I don't know if that's like is that. I guess if you're from New York, it's is it lame to ride one of those? <laughs> uh, you no, know, I, I I I would encourage it. And walking or biking through the city is a, you know a great way to see it. That's an and it's yeah. an easy actually. I mean, uh, traffic notwithstanding, it was an it's an easy city to bike around. It's flat as a board. So. Um, you know, I just cruised around and I went up through and I was biking around like straight past the, the Natural History Museum and then I cut across the park and uh, the Upper West Side feels like like a an ideal version of like residential Manhattan to me. Like uh, you know, maybe it's, it has something to do with movies I've seen or something. But uh, I was always I, I found myself thinking like if I ever lived in New York, I would like to live here. <laughs> Yeah, it's a great place, and it's gone through a lot of transformations. And one of the things I'm writing about it now, sort of in an earlier time, but when I grew up, it was a pretty rough place. And in fact, a lot of people from the east side wouldn't come over to the west side necessarily because it was a place where you could be walking in one block, go two blocks over, and get mugged. I mean, it was there were a lot of welfare hotels, a lot of drug dealers and prostitutes, and it was it was a fairly rough place. Um, and they, I think they had let uh, a lot of people out of institutions. There was a lot of, it was, just, it was mixed. And if you lived there, it was kind of, it was a really interesting place. A lot of artists lived there. It was, it was just funkier and more interesting than the Upper East Side, which seemed very homogenous to me when I was growing up. So I liked it, but it was, uh, it, it, you know, it, it wasn't in some ways an easy place to live in terms of, of proximity to, to danger, I would say, when I was growing up. So I always say the New York of my childhood was if you see the French Connection or um, Dog Day Afternoon and you look sort of at the, <laughs> the way the, the streets and subways looked, that's, that's how it felt when I was growing up. Well, I didn't realize that the, uh, that, uh, the Upper West Side was that rough. I always thought it was like a nice – I thought the Upper was always nicer. Yeah, I mean, there were always the big, beautiful buildings. You know, I mean, there was always the Beresford and the El Dorado, you know, in the Dakota, um, the, some great – and the San Remo, these great – palatial-looking buildings that overlooked Central Park. But then if you went over to sort of even Columbus Avenue, Columbus Avenue became gentrified and, and sort of suddenly had a bunch of nice cafes and then restaurants in the 80s, um, sort of mid-80s. But before that, it was pretty rough, and Amsterdam Avenue was really rough. So um, I know it surprises people um, in the age of, of Seinfeld, you know, that that, that, <laughs> that, that time existed. Um, but it's not so long ago that it was it was kind of a rough place. So what did your what did your folks do? Like, were you uh, did you come from like a literary or artistic family? Or yeah, my mother um, always wrote. She was the editor of a literary magazine at in Connecticut College, and she used to read for a literary agent, Sterling Lord. She was you know, mostly raising us, but she did that, and then she started writing. She actually wrote a novel, and then she um, she was working on a biography of Frida Lawrence when she she passed away when I was in college. She had had uh, lung cancer, but she was definitely literary. And my father was a lawyer, but but a big reader. So, so what, I mean, what was it like? Did you get to actually witness your mother working on books? I mean, did that, like having having like a, a, a literary parent, I mean, do you find that it was an advantage in any way? 
Yeah, I, in terms of what we cared about, also, you know, they told stories, and my father, even though he was a lawyer, told us stories all the time. He would, sort of, when he dropped us off at school, we'd take a cab with him or go on the subway, and he would tell stories along the way, and my mom did too, and, um, yeah, and, and cared about books, and talked really intelligently about movies, there were always big discussions about the movies we'd seen, and so, yeah, I think, I think it was a help. Um, I didn't really, I wasn't writing in college even because I actually thought I was going to go to law school um, and I didn't, I, uh, other than my mom who wasn't you know, a full-time writer, I didn't know a lot of writers at the time and so it wasn't until I was out of college a couple of years that I, I you know, started getting serious and became a writer. Okay, so like the itch didn't, I mean, when, when did you first even have an inkling of it? Was it in college? You were starting to kind of wobble a little bit on the whole law school thing? or? I think I fooled around with it in high school. Um, but didn't really know what I was doing, and then um, didn't we didn't really have a, a writer in residence at my college at, at Haverford, although we have some great writers. Frank Conroy went there, and uh, Nicholson Baker, and Colin Harrison. We've had a few people that have come through, but um, but I wasn't really doing it. I, uh, th- to be honest, I was writing my essay of why I wanted to go to law school, um, to the <laughs> law schools, and it was such bullshit that I I couldn't convince myself, and I figured if I couldn't convince myself, I had to rethink this. And then, what, um, and then, what was it that I mean? Then it was at that point that you finally just kind of admitted to yourself that you wanted to be a fiction writer, or was there some like experience or mentor or book that triggered it? Yeah, like sort of all of the above. The first thing I wanted to do is I decided that I would be a journalist, and I, like everyone else, sort of imagined myself as a foreign correspondent. And um, but instead, my first job was at the Syracuse Post Standard, and um, I got an internship there, and then. I convinced them to hire me full-time after that. But while I was uh, there, that's when I started to write fiction and I started to meet writers. And um, when people ask me about you know, whether the journalism was good, I say, yeah, my job was basically to run around and try to find stories you know, and then to listen to people, which was, was really helpful to me. And then I showed some of the features I did. On, I, I would write about these carnies and different characters I met at the state fair. I remember I did a whole series and I showed it to a novelist at Syracuse, uh, Doug Unger. And he loved the features and he showed them to Tobias Wolf. And the two of them let me into their graduate workshops, which was kind of crazy. I'd only written like one short story. And I got into Tobias Wolf's uh, graduate fiction workshop where everybody was already publishing in good magazines. Um, and so he sort of took a chance on me, um, and, and I didn't have to pay. I was non-matriculated, and I would just do my day job, and then at night I'd go to workshop, um, and then uh, Doug let me into his class in the spring. So when, when, when thing, was this? This was, oh, uh, the, I think 1990. Okay. And and the uh, and like the the work that you were doing, I mean, like you talk about working as a journalist and being in these like you know the small town environment and going to a state fair, and it, it strikes me that like you could probably spend uh, time at a state fair and mine that experience, mine that experience for for a lot of fiction. I mean, you know, just having that having the understanding, uh, you know, from a journalistic perspective that stories are everywhere would probably feed fiction. I think that maybe the tendency is sometimes when you're young. Uh, to think that you have to have this kind of grand experience, uh, or if you're, you know, even if you're not young, you're coming at fiction, you know, as a, as a novice, you think you have to go out and have some sort of spectacular thing happen to you in your life in order to have something to write about. But uh, do you think you learned that you can find narrative in unexpected and maybe uh, smaller experiences? 
And these, these stories were spectacular as far as I was concerned. I, mean, I met two or three different guys who literally just run away with a carnival. And then I met this couple. They were face painters. And they each, they'd met at a fair, and then they both left their families, including like each had three or four kids to fall in love and run away with, with a carnival and, and paint faces, which I thought was completely bizarre <laughs> um, and not all that honorable. But, um, but yeah, it was filled with, with, with great stuff. And I started, you know, I guess I started to write by listening to people and kind of, kind of capturing these little subcultures, you know, which I think is, is also a really rich thing to mine when you're writing fiction is to find some subculture, some uh, you know, people who, who have fascinations that are different than your own. And, um, yeah, I thought, it was, I thought it was great stuff. I'd, in some ways, I'd love to go back there. Um, you know, I mean, the, the great state fair piece is the David Foster Wallace piece, but I, as I read it, I thought back to my own experience with that one. So. Sure. Well, and, you know, it's like it's funny, too, to hear you say that, like, when you started out as a journalist, you imagined yourself as a foreign correspondent because uh, I've had that fantasy. I, I still have that fantasy of being able to go, uh, you know, off to some far-flung locale where something exciting is happening and, and just get to cover it. That sounds like, a good, it sounds like good work, but increasingly hard to get. Uh, not that it was yeah. ever easy. No, and and uh, I think and the thing that I, I I sort of learned quickly is that I could I could treat my job in upstate with the same kind of excitement that I would have if I was overseas because it was all so different for me you know it was first time I'd lived in a really small town the life was really different the culture was different and so and that ended up being a lot about what I write about I mean my first novel was really about the cultures, the different cultures of downstate and upstate, and a lot of my fiction. I, some of the stories are upstate stories, but I'm, I've always been interested in that idea that of how different New York City is from a world that's just sort of four hours north of New York. How different things are. Yeah, what is that? I mean, because I don't, I'm not super familiar. I mean, I've been to New York a bunch of times. I've never been upstate. Like, what can you encapsulate? What the difference is? Well, I would say it's. I mean, like, like. From Syracuse, that central New York part is really kind of Midwestern um, in many ways, and it's also, you know, it, 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 it's a little less. Uh, of, uh, it, it, I mean, it, it it's just very, very different culturally. A lot more conservative. Um, it's, it's sort of warm and friendly. Um, it's got a bit of, of uh, an inferiority complex, at least the county that I lived in. Um, this sort of sense that no one would ever come from New York, and they were sort of shocked that I'd grown up in New York and that I would have you know, chosen to live up there. Um, but um, people talk different. There's a kind of flat A. People say things like barbecue, and we were really happy, like that, which <laughs> an accent is sort of very different. It's not so, and then I think around Albany, it, it's it, at least that part of upstate New York or the Adirondacks is, feels a little bit closer to uh, New England, the feel of it. So, um, But I think that when you grew up in New York City, it's all upstate. Like, I mean, there are people that were, you know, that I re- went to high school with that would refer to Westchester County as upstate New York. <laughs> so, I was, yeah, because I have, I have a friend who grew up in New York, and, and he had, like, he, you know, he had friends, and he grew up on the Upper West Side, incidentally, but uh, he had a friend that had never left, like, barely had left Manhattan except to go to Florida to visit her grandparents. And, like, uh, you know, she he, we were out in Colorado at the time, and, and she would come out to visit, and it was, like, scary to be in, like, quiet, wide-open space. <laughs> You know what I'm saying? Like environmentally, yeah. like did, did you have? Was it a challenge for you after being in this, you know, in this metropolis throughout your entire childhood, and then suddenly being plunked down in the countryside? Yeah, it, it, but it was a good challenge for me. Yeah, but you have to get used to how much less there is to do, and then you do get adjusted to it. Um, 
Yeah, it was. I mean, the sort of exotic food was a Chinese restaurant. You know, it was. A, it was. It was very, very different. And and the huge, as you say, the huge spaces. But I I got used to that pretty early on because I just loved it. I loved driving around and seeing just big, beautiful fields and that huge lake. And so I I it was it was really. And even in the winter when I was covered in snow, I found it really beautiful. I, I got some cross-country skis and sort of tried to make the best of it. Yeah. Well, and what about the workshop experience? Like, did you, I mean, you obviously got in, uh, it was a lucky break to get in with so little fiction under your belt, but how did it go, you know, uh, like the, once you were in there and, and starting to actually dig in and work on fiction? That was great. I mean, I felt like, like, um, what I got from from Toby Wolf was the chance to sort of see how he read and borrow his instincts on stuff, and so to look at his line edits or to hear as he spoke about why something worked or didn't work, and have him teach published stories, which we did a lot in there. And and I, I didn't even know what to like at that point. I mean, I I, I mean, I, there, I I I had read a lot, obviously in college, but it but I was reading in a different way. And then one of the most valuable things was going out with my classmates and getting beers and hearing about the, the writers that they loved. And I hadn't, I couldn't uh, share in that that much, but I would just make lists and I would try to catch up by reading everything I could. I just felt like I was just, I was just going to read like crazy and write like crazy and catch up. And I caught up kind of quickly. I started writing a, a lot better, you know, within a few months. And so, yeah, I, I felt like things came together pretty quickly. I mean, they did and they didn't. I, I would write something that was way better than anything I'd written, and then I would assume I'd gotten better, and then I would write a really terrible story the next time out. So, um, but, it, but it was, I guess it was that chance to be around people who cared about it. I had never, you know, one of the things I always tell my students is I'd never read stories twice. Now I was reading them five or six times and, and finding that I was learning so much by reading a story that many times. Yeah, you know, that's a good point, because I remember uh, there's like an anecdote that I uh, always remember about Martin Scorsese talking about like his sickly childhood in New York and how he was bedridden for a lot of it. I forget what it was that he had, but he had, you know, some long illness when he was young. And, uh, you know, back in those days, there was no cable television. There were like three networks and there was like a, some sort of movie series that would run and it would run the same movies over and over again. And he would sit there and watch them repeatedly. Uh, so there's something to be said for repeat viewing or repeat reading when it comes to apprenticing. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I didn't know about that, that about Scorsese. That's great. And, and how about you? And you were, did, did you always read things two, three times or no, no. I mean, I, I think I can think of books that like really, that are really sticky for me that I've read repeatedly. Um, like I think of, uh, like I read, uh, journey to the end of the night. I don't know how many times I've read that novel, but uh, like I just couldn't figure out how he got all, everything in there, <laughs> right? You know, so it's, right. it, it feels like unpacking almost. But there, there are other novels that, um, and you know, short story collections that you know really hit me hard. And those books become kind of like a desk reference for me almost. That's right. And, and That's I, you know, I go back to them, and you know, I don't know. It's hard to be explicit. I mean, maybe maybe you can point to certain things and aspects of. Um, you know how the how the the books work and, and things that you take away, but. You know, I almost feel like you learn through osmosis. I'm just trying to soak it in. You know, it's hard to yeah. it's hard to articulate. You know, when you're when you're going back for a repeat read, but um, you know, certain books resonate. Yeah, no, and, and that's definitely been true for me. 
I always feel like there's certain books for different projects that are sort of like your mentor, and you can always you sort of go back to them when you get stuck, and they help you. So. And what about like the what about like uh, you know covering other authors? That's I mean I use like the the verb in the same sense that you might use it if you're a musician. But like when you were starting out, were there certain authors whose work you were uh, explicitly trying to imitate? Yeah, yeah, and you can feel it. And and actually, some of the stories that even stories that I'd published in decent places, I couldn't put them in the collection because they felt too derivative. You know, I would feel. I would so clearly see my Raymond Carver story or my Richard Ford story or my Laurie Moore story or my Flannery O'Connor story. Um, so, I mean, I, it's not that those writers don't find their way into what I'm doing anyway, but, but when it feels really, or of course, I mean, we are all, you know, people who came of age when I did writing our Dennis Johnson stories after we read Jesus' Son, you know. So right. It, so it was, yeah, and, and that's fine and it was, it was good, but I, you know, it, it takes a while to, to sort of use the influence without having it be a sort of a knockoff of, of another writer. And you feel like you have a good enough sense of your own work and like a good enough editorial filter when it comes to reading your own work to know, like, this is too explicitly Laurie Moore, you know, like, like how do you gauge? Yeah, I, I mean, the, the way I sort of have come to, to see my own work is that I feel like, for me at least, character determines form. So, I mean, some of my stories may resemble uh, a um, another writer because the world is similar in some way. I mean, some of the reviewers mentioned Cheever, who is someone I love, you know, or Carver, or there are different people that I get, that, that, that they'll refer to when they're reviewing my work. But, um, but I, I think it, 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 for me, it's, I always have to get a, 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 a consciousness, you know, a sort of channel a consciousness, which is one of the characters. And then it has to feel as though the book comes from that character in some way. I mean, of course it comes from me, but, but um, but it doesn't feel that way in the process, and then and then and then I feel sort of like I have one story that's epistolary, but that for that character it's the right form for that particular character. So I always think that in terms of experimentation, that I think experimentation has to grow out of character, at least for me. So how do you? Okay, so when you when you sit down to write a short story, um, you usually in, like envision a character, hear a voice. It usually starts there. Yeah, yeah, and I try to I. Um, a friend of mine came came up with this notion of, of uh, my friend Ryan Hardy, a story writer, came up with this notion of, of, or someone else came up with it, I guess, of pushing a boulder over a hill, and then once you've nudged it over that hill, you can't stop it. So beginning with something in the, really, in the first couple lines in which things start have to start happening immediately. And so, like with Balloon Night, I have a, my character, you know, in the first line that his wife has left him and he's thrown this party, you know, and he can't stop the party, so he has to go, he has to figure out what he's going to do next, because he can't disinvite people. So there's any number of the stories, there's something, I have a sense of who the person is and, and how they think and speak, and then I also have that kind of situation that hopefully is something that can't be stopped, and then, then when that happens, then you can have that experience of almost watching it develop, rather than feeling like it's overly controlled by you. And, and you know a lot of the you, you, um, you know a lot of the stories like deal with the theme of class uh, privilege. You know, like you're referring to the character who's throwing the party. Um, you know, uh, on the heels of his wife leaving him and and the marriage coming apart. And uh, you know, are the are you drawing on uh, people you knew? I'm, I'm assuming like growing up in New York, you had access to um, you know some degree of privilege, or you were surrounded by people who were really privileged. Is that the case? Yeah, I mean, it did. 
the thing about it, though, is that it doesn't feel it when you're living it. I mean, yeah, we, my dad was a corporate lawyer, and we had, a, we had a nice apartment in a great neighborhood, but that just felt like my life. I didn't, and I don't, he wasn't particularly, you know, ostentatious about anything, but, but yeah, I, I mean, certainly we were, we were, we were privileged, um, but I just, I didn't have the sense of that um, always as I was writing it, but I did become increasingly aware, especially when I you know, sort of moved out and went to other places, I was more acutely aware of class. I was probably less aware of it when I was growing up. Yeah, I think that's the uh, case. I mean, you know, like well, however you grow up, you know, kids don't typically, unless their parents are really fixated on it. I think that kids pull a lot from their parents. But, um, you know, if, you, if you're not aware of it growing up, like I think if you go surround yourself with people who are interested in writing fiction, you're bound to run into it. <laughs> Because yeah, I, feel, I, I feel like the the literary arts, you know, they tend to come with all sorts of different financial hardships, and you're gonna you're gonna run into it one way or the other. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Um, you know, and just by being a writer, you're right. You know, and that that I watched my friends who went to college and and had professions, became lawyers or doctors, have very different lifestyles. You know, I mean, I remember sitting in a car with two friends when they were discussing their mortgages at an age where, you know, I was just trying to rent a really cheap apartment and it just it was like they were from another planet i, I just i had never knew anything about a mortgage <laughs> and they were they were my age they'd already started families already had nice homes and yeah it was making my mind spin okay but did it i mean like how did you deal with that because that can be anxiety inducing i know i've felt that it's like oh god am i fucking my life up like i still sometimes wonder that you know like have i divided <laughs> have i burned some sort of bridge am i you know, am I if I cross some line and now it's just like you know you're stuck with whatever uh, you know fate has in store or whatever you know like do you was your commitment to being a literary artist so strong that when you were in that car talking to those friends and hearing about their lives you know it didn't phase you or did it cause you any uh, did, did it cause you to pause? I mean, it caused me to pause, and it, and it created a certain amount of anxiety. I mean, the, the best thing I could do is, is be around people who had a different currency. So sort of, if you're around other, there were other people, you know, my, the people that I knew in graduate school for whom, you know, they, they would compare who they'd read um, in the same way that someone else would discuss their mortgages. So there's different <laughs> things that people value. Um, and so, so if you have enough of that, you know, um, I, I, something that I think of, and I've actually sort of told my students, and it sounds kind of funny, but I always tell them that it, it, as a writer, it's important to romanticize your life. And what I mean isn't to romanticize it instead of work. I think hard work is part of that. But to see yourself as the protagonist you know, in, a, in a novel that you'd root for in some sort of way, to see the life as a virtuous life, you know, and, and, um, and to see your work as important... And if you can do that, then and you can be around other people who value it, it becomes very lonely if you if you're around people and nobody values it though. And so I I do. It's not that you, you want to have a broad cross section of friends, as you know too. I'm sure you've been in the same position. But if you don't have any writers or readers in your world, it can get pretty lonely. Yeah, I mean, I'm in Los Angeles, and I feel like you know literary artists, um, you know, literary writers definitely get short shrift you know it's all about uh, the movies and television uh, though there is you know there is a, a literary community here but it can sometimes especially because the money can be so good in television and film and the money is often not good uh in books that you find yourself thinking like jesus you know and the, yeah. stu the stuff that the stuff that you see people making all this money doing you know that they put on television i wouldn't want to watch it you know it's like it's, right, it, right. It, can, it can be depressing but 
Uh, it's interesting to hear you talk about making yourself the protagonist, uh, you know, in your own uh, life and romanticizing your life because, um, you know, I, I struggle with this, you know, when it comes to see, like wondering how much the work matters, you know, like if you, if you're going out there and you're writing these books and, you know, 300 people, a thousand people, 10,000 people are, are reading them. That's not nothing. But when you, when you look at the rest of the culture and you can, you see the numbers for, you know, even the worst movie is pulling in, you know, however many millions of dollars at the box office. Like, do you ever find yourself, uh, losing faith or have you ever like had like a really dark night of the soul where you thought to yourself, like, maybe I should go back to law school. I'm actually going to do it. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that, that they're, they're, they're different midlife crises, and, and there's the midlife crisis where you've made a ton of money and you think, what does this all add up to? And then there's the crisis where you didn't make a lot of money. <laughs> you, you know, you have, you have that kind of crisis, and you think, boy, I'm, I'm ready to make a lot of money. But um, the one thing, I, I, writing this book, is the, what, what has been gratifying about it has been the intensity of the responses I've, I'm getting for people. And so maybe if we don't have a mass audience, you know, I'm sure it's true with you and, and your books, is the, those who, who, who do engage with it, they really engage with it in a very intense way. It becomes the other part of their brain for the sort of week or two weeks, you know, you know that they've spent with that book. And so I think there's, there's something to that, to, to, to the level of intimacy and, uh, and intensity that, um, that a book can can give to somebody and that and that kind of exchange between uh, a writer and a reader and so that's been that's been nice for me so that sustained me <laughs> yeah at least for now we'll see well no the book's gotten an amazing critical response and i feel like if you do work that generates that kind of excitement um you know, at the very least it should it should catapult you to the next thing and give you the confidence to write the next book yes so when you were at, when you were at Syracuse, uh, is that where you wrote uh, the early drafts of the Last Good Chance? No, I, I you know I, I I went from one place to the next. I, I ended up going to Iowa after that. Um, so I just had a year there, and then they the uh, Toby Wolf and Doug Unger wrote my letters of recommendation. I went to the workshop in Iowa for two years, and then I had a Stegner Fellowship after that. So I actually had more workshop than I probably should have had, you know, by the time I left. But it was. It was great because even coming to Iowa and, and going to Stanford, I actually had a you know a stipend and a salary in those places, so I never had to pay for grad school, and I could sort of get by as long as I lived cheaply. And it was really it's not till uh, I got to um, to Stanford that I started writing uh, the Last Good Chance, which was my first novel. Okay, so, so what, what I was writing sports too, but. So what did yeah? So what did you do at Iowa, and how like what was your response to the that environment? I've talked to a lot of writers who have been on the sh uh, who you know who went there, and I'm always curious uh, to hear because I've gotten a variety of responses. For me, it was heaven because uh, you know because I'd left my newspaper job where I mean a lot of close friends, but suddenly even that sort of first picnic when there's a hundred writers all around and and they're all I found them all pretty interesting and and share, having this sort of shared background and things that we you know that we were interested in I, it was it was fun i think i struggled to sort of find my group but by the time i did i, I had a bunch of really good readers i had some great professors i had this kind of odd friendship with james salter who was like my, my hero but the fact that i was a college tennis player meant that i got more attention than other people because i was his tennis partner <laughs> so wait you, you played tennis at iowa 
No, I played tennis at Haverford College. I did play, you know, tennis while I was there. But yeah, and I played at tennis at Iowa. My two tennis partners were uh, Salter and Abraham Vergaze, you know, who are like, you know, that was that was my chance to become friends with both of them was through my tennis game. So it was useful for that. And you did become friends. You became friends with them. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I saw Salter over the years and Aspen a few times. I haven't seen him in a long time, but he's he's still like a giant and a hero to me and. That was great to to get to know him and Frank Conroy was a great teacher. I had Meg Wolitzer. That was my first workshop, and she was super smart. And Marilyn Robinson. So you can't get better, you know, in terms of the people I got to study with. Yeah, and then you got the Stegner. Yeah, I did, and that was that was why I moved out to California. Okay, so you get the Stegner, and then that's where you start to work on the novel. Yeah, I mean, I sort of midway through my first year, I'd sort of. You know, I decided my my decision to write a novel was was to uh, uh, was by meeting novelists and feeling as though their lives were more regular. They sort of would get their four or five hours of writing done, then like go for a run, fix a nice meal, and start that cycle again. I felt like as a short story writer, I kept binging and sort of writing around the clock for like a week and then having nothing to do. So a novel felt like a sort of good sustained long-term relationship which which i wanted like yeah that i mean there is something nice when you get into a rhythm with a long project like that and uh you know if you i feel like if you get uh started and you find yourself in there and then uh, you know you have a day or two where you don't you know get the words down or you don't have that four or five hours you start to feel weird yeah yeah and um and and it was it it, it was a long struggle and then it was, yeah, I mean, I, I learned everything I know about novel writing while I was writing my first novel. But it wasn't, uh, I thought the transition would be easier, which is ridiculous, you know, in retrospect. But I thought, okay, well, I'm, I'm doing well writing short stories. Uh, I'll just take what I know from there and write a, a longer short story, which will be a novel, you know, and then it's, but it feels to me very, very different skills, you know, very different strategies you know, in, involved. Like, what did you, I mean, not to put you two on the spot, because these kinds of questions uh, can be a pain, but, like, are there specific things, you know, the difference between short stories and novel writing that um, you had to struggle through? Yeah, I, a couple things. I mean, one, I think there's a quote from uh, someone told me that Madison Smart Bell said this, said something that, that, that you can intuit your way through a short story, but you can't really intuit your way through a novel. I mean, there's a lot of planning and thinking and outlining, I think, that have to go into it. I mean, there's a mixture of, of the two. But um, but I was a pretty intuitive story writer. I could just sort of get a voice and kind of and, and figure my way through it at first. Now I'm I mean I'm, I plan that out a little bit more now. But with a novel, I I I started in sort of intuiting my way into it and finding that I was going in so many different directions. hadn't really uh, settled on what the story was and who the central characters were. And so um, so it was learning that. And also, I guess um, most story writers need to learn how to write scenes because, I mean, there's a lot of sort of half scenes and summary in stories. I mean, there are some scenes, but novels tend to rely a lot more on, on, on writing good, clean scenes. So, um, so yeah, so there's some things I needed to learn. Do you, I mean, so um, did you, do you do outlines? Well, I sort of, after a while, I can't do an outline going in because I don't know enough. I have to sort of go into the world, into the place, find, you know, the voice is the most important thing and, and, and sort of have the, the contours of the story. What's also important to me, it's, you know, in, 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 um, 
you know, with sort of, I read a nonfiction book too, a novel, and now I'm working on a new novel, is to find out the span of time that I'm dealing with too, is an mm. important thing. And I can, I can, I, I start to see the shape after I know how much, you know, whether it's going to be a novel that takes place in two weeks or 10 years. Um, that's an important part of it too. Yeah, it feels like, it feels like with a, uh, a novel, I mean, I guess it could be the, the same could apply to a short story, but especially with a novel, if you have some sense of where the thing ends, uh, even if it's just time span or if you have like a, you know, some vision of the scene, like that always helps me like to have some idea of where the hell I'm going. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, I think you're right. And having, and having a strong sense of the ending and maybe even, I think you're, you're better off in some ways having an element of the ending as you're writing the beginning, you know, which gives you that kind of propels, you know, propels you forward in a, in a kind of interesting way. So, yeah. So, okay. So when you're working on a novel, um, you know, is that the, what you do is you do the four or five hours, what in the morning? Are you a, a night writer? What's the, what's I your... used to be a night writer in grad school. I'm, 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 I'm finding myself better, um, uh, in the mornings. I mean, now I'm a dad. And so, um, <laughs> so, so that, that creates different challenges because I'm, I'm usually taking my son to school, but then, then, you know, as soon as that's done, then I can get to work again. So. I can't, I can't tell you how many like, uh, writers I know that I've sp- spoken with on this show who used to be night writers before they became parents. I mean, I guess right. you, you sort of have to fit it in whenever, but they're like, yeah, I used to work all night and do all this. And now it's like, you know, if I have three hours and you know, it's usually got to be in the morning when you still have half a brain. Well, I just went away. Um, a friend of mine um, who lives has a house in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, lent me his house. So I just sort of went away for two weeks and kind of locked myself in. And then that kind of, if you can ever have that experience, which is so hard to get, of going sort of almost around the clock with reading and writing and thinking, it was just great. I could just get a ton of stuff done. So oh. that, that's for me. If I can, if I can steal away a few times. You know, it's it's just it's amazing how much new work. And then I can use the sort of smaller spans of time and concentration span to do editing and shaping. But to do new work, it's really really nice to have nothing else to do but write. Yeah, especially in Jackson Hole, that's a nice place. Yeah, it was great. It was great. They had there were forty elk on the backyard on one of the evenings as I was working. I was like, oh my. Oh my god. So how many? Like okay, cause, because. That sounds great, and I, I mean, it sounds like you took full advantage of it, but like, I can imagine a scenario where someone's like, yeah, here's the keys to my place in Jackson Hole, and then I go up there, and there's nothing to do, and I'm like, sitting there just staring at elk, <laughs> or, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, did you have to like really regiment yourself, or did you fall right into it? Oh, I fell right into it. You I did? Just, okay. Uh, yeah, I just, um, yeah, I have. I, 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 I don't usually have that experience if I can get. Um, it's just it's, it's just unbroken time where I can read and write. I, I usually use it well. Did you, but I mean, there is. It doesn't mean that that there aren't moments of despair, you know, within there where you have a day in which everything you write sucks beyond belief, you know, and you think you want to give up, <laughs> give up everything. But but you have those. But it's just that the nice thing is that you can have it, and then maybe even within the day or the next day you can be on to something good rather than, than sort of your normal life where it can cost you, you know, a week. Well, what about, and what about the fluctuations, uh, in perception that happen when you read your own work from day to day? Because, uh, you know, I think it's very common experience for writers where, you know, one day you, you might be writing it or you might be reading yesterday's pages and think to yourself, like, uh, this is fantastic. Like I'm a, I'm a genius. <laughs> and, and then the next day you pick it up and you have like almost the exact opposite experience of it. Like, how do you manage that? And how do you find your way to, you know, a, a clear eyed view of your own stuff? 
that's that's great that you said that. I mean, I've had these kind of friend of mine who says that the natural state of being a writer is to be bipolar, you know, because there are those moments where you think, you, you do, you think, this is great, I'm so smart, and then you <laughs> think, I, I can't, I, I don't know if I'll ever have an intelligent thought again. Um, and, um, yeah, uh, uh, I think that if you if you can have some sort of sense that, that you've been like that in the past and never get sort of too high, you know, on the good stuff, just sort of set it aside and and then also, there, I mean, there's a tendency sometimes the stuff that I think really sucks I'll come back to later, and there, there's some good things in it. Um, so, but I think, I think actually when I'm actually on a roll, there's, there's sometimes when I'm writing well that I'm so fully aware of how bad some of the stuff I've been done previously that I, I haven't been able to see before, but suddenly when I'm getting it right, it's so different from, from what it was when it wasn't right that, um, that, that that's a great time, and then I try to just max out on that, that that once I get into that mindset, and try to make it last as long as possible. But I had written a scene that I knew belonged. This is in the new book that are that I you know, and I knew there were problems with it. And then I was sort of in a good place, and I just wrote it so much better. And I hated it the previous draft so much more when I wrote it well, <laughs> when I was in that sort of better state of mind. So. So okay, wait. Let me just to be clear that you 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 didn't like the version that you wrote in the better state of mind. No, I liked the the one in the better state oh, of okay. mind. I'd written it. I'd written it sort of in a sort of normal writing day. Knew that there were problems, but I didn't know how severe the problems were until I started writing a little bit. You know, it, I, I sort of was in a better place and writing better. Right, and then so, what what about like the discipline um, that you have to have when it comes to editing your own work? Because like this is. This is sort of like a tragic aspect of writing that can happen in just a workday existence and doesn't get talked about all that much. But you, know, you can mangle a perfectly good piece of writing by being in a bad mood and taking out the editorial knife. I mean, I, I guess with word processing programs, you can save versions and protect yourself a little bit. But um, do you have any kind of like method to like when you allow yourself to edit and uh, when you decide to like, you know, not trust yourself to take out the knife and start hacking things up? That's a, that's a, yeah, I mean, I think, I think I'm better off if I just keep moving forward and postpone that moment of, you know, of coming back into it. But, um, I'm a pretty good editor in general. So, and I, and I, the other thing that I've learned is, is to sort of trust two things, trust my obsession. Like if I'm obsessing over a paragraph and I need to go over it and over and over it, and it, and it, it feels like mental illness after a while, you know, because you're, you've just gone over this thing so often. But if I do, it's because I need to get it right and it's important and then, and if I still feel frustrated with it, usually it's because there still is a problem. I mean, I can let things go when, when you know, when I when I get it right. But there's a story in the collection, Birthday Girl, it's, um, and I, you know, I, I'd worked the, and this is often happening, happens. You work the ending over and over again, and I kept trying to fiddle with, with the last sort of couple lines of it as though that was the fix. And then... There was a whole element of the ending that that wasn't there before. There's this kind of flash forward that sort of saves the story, but I couldn't see it forever. And, I, and then, th so this is, gets to what you're saying. I'm sitting there tinkering with a word here or there, and that's not the problem. The problem is bigger than that. You know, there, there's a whole other part of the ending that's not there, and I couldn't see it. You know, I actually had to get away from the story for a, a while and not even think about it. And suddenly, I was reading something else, and I was like, Ah, I've got it. I know what I need to do. And I went back into it, and then. Solve my problem. Hmm. And do, do you have any like uh, like is your wife like a reader for you, or do you have a friend who's like a first reader who is instrumental in uh, helping you make those initial editorial decisions? 
Yeah, I, I, I have great readers around me, and my wife is a pretty severe reader. I mean, she's she's a really, really good reader, but I, I don't want to show her early stress because she's <laughs> she's too tough. But um, but but she's very good at knowing when things work or not. Um, and uh, and then I have I you know I have some terrific readers, you know, along the way. But usually on these these sorts of things that I'm talking about, like like. Um, you, you have to come up with it yourself, and, and you, often what happens, actually, I think the best way to use your, your fellow writers, and, and I'd ask you the same question, is sometimes they can identify the problem, but their prescription isn't necessarily right, or they've identified something, and you might disagree with them, but they're on to, they're, there's some element that's not working, and, and even though they haven't put their finger on it, you don't reject their advice, because, because it might be something else, so... And so I have that. I have people who will, who will, like they'll struggle with some part of the story, and then they'll they'll identify it, and I'll go, "You're right. It, it it's not working there, but but I'll have to come up with my own sort of solution for it." Usually, yeah, that's yeah. a good point to make because here again, like I mean, it, I don't mean to over make it sound overly dramatic, but you know, making these decisions editorially and knowing uh, like when to trust your gut and when to listen to good advice, like all of these little negotiations are what make. Uh, a good artist, you know, knowing how to navigate them. And I guess it's a, you know, it's a combination of discipline and intuition and knowing, I don't know, you know what I'm saying? Like, it, it, I, I totally do. And what I'm saying here, like two things, which is in keeping with what you're saying is that you'll have a response to their criticism, which is like, no, you're wrong. And you'll be right that they're wrong. But if you just stay on that and stick with what you have, you'll be wrong too. So the idea is they might be wrong, but they're onto something and you have to figure out what it is. Like, you know, they, you've lived with the story longer. And then the other thing is, is, you know, Jordan Bass, who's my editor at McSweeney's that published a few stories there. He, on the, there's a letters from the Academy, that story, he did a pretty thorough edit. And I always tell this story on, on Friday, I got his edits and I called to a bunch of friends. I was furious. You know, I just like, he had really gotten rid of a lot of things that I was, quite happy with and by the time sunday night someone said do not call him you know just wait for the end of the weekend (laughs) on on sunday i read the story like just straight through and just eliminated the stuff that he'd eliminated and the story was so much better and he was a great edit and i had i was you know and i was i was ready to throw down on friday (laughs) and ready to buy him a drink on sunday (laughs) well it's a good Um, it's a good lesson don't make that call don't send that email Wait until cooler heads have prevailed. But, you know, it's also like, uh, you know, like I, when, you, when an editor does a really good job uh, for you, it, like it's kind of a, saving you from yourself. It's a great relief. Right. And you feel like an enormous sense of gratitude. I, I feel the same way about copy editing. Just like, oh, my God, yeah. you know, thank you for uh, saving me from making an ass of myself by, you know, misspelling my own name or whatever. But, um, yeah. you know, it's yeah. – it's, uh, I don't know. It's just, it, it, I guess it's a skill set and, um, you know, it's a, it's a case where you got to make sure that you, uh, as you mentioned earlier, don't let yourself get too high when someone says good things and don't let yourself get too low or too angry when someone comes back with criticism or cuts that might seem, um, you know, at first to be uh, drastic. And so, you know, other than just kind of sitting on it, um, and being patient and maybe having a drink or sleeping on it or whatever, like, is there anything that you do in the context of your writing ritual to relieve stress or to keep yourself centered, uh, or to keep yourself, you know, from these emotional highs and lows? Like uh, you're living out in Mill Valley. Are you doing Tai Chi? Like what's happening? <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you're onto it. I mean, it's, it's, 
you know, I, I, I think that when I first came out west to for the Stegner, I had a pretty imbalanced life in which I would, I would just read sort of and write and shut myself in. And now I sort of have a more balanced life. I, I try to, I try not to have too much of a social life so that it overwhelms me, but I, but I also need people around, so I make sure that, that I have time when I'm with other people. And also I do sports of different, I play basketball and tennis, and you know, I, do, I do a variety of different things and take walks and try to you know, eat well and, and, and um, keep in balance, um, which means that I can be more intense you know, on the page. There's a Flaubert line that I, I always liked, which is something defective, lead a tranquil life so the storms happen in your work. You know, and I think sort of the more sort of imbalanced you are, the more imbalanced your characters can be, oddly enough. So, um. That makes sense. You know, and I feel like, too, because like, you can get into like a – I think you can get into a good groove for a while where you're really closed off and it's just books and writing and it's almost like this monastic existence. You know, And I feel like graduate school – well, I guess graduate school can be more social because you've got your workshop and your classmates and whatnot. But I've had years like that. But after a while, um, you know, you, you start to burn out or there's a certain inertia starts to creep in. Like you do need to go out and or I need to be out among people. Like you, you can forget how much energy you, you, you receive from that and how important it is to um, leave your desk and your computer and your books and, you know, go out into the world and <laughs> have conversations and be a person. I think you just put it in a perfect way that I, that I hadn't found the words for, but is burnout, which is like, I mean, I just described the, the heaven of two weeks in Wyoming, but that's two weeks. You know, if you, if you take that to, you know, months and months, you, you get to the point where you've actually burnt out, you know, and you don't have anything left, you know, because right. it's actually sometimes getting out into the world feeds you, you know, and gives you material. So. Mm. Well, I want to I want to ask you before I let you go, um, you know, because you've written uh, a novel and you've written now uh, a really well received short story collection, but you also wrote a work of nonfiction, which uh, you know I suppose is a natural extension of the work that you did at the beginning of your career in journalism. Um, but the the book is uh, on top of the world, and it's about nine eleven and Cantor Fitzgerald, and uh, I'm just curious as to how you came to that project and and how you can. You know how you might uh, describe working on a, a, a book length work of non work of nonfiction. Um, you know, since you seem to yeah, have, you've tried everything, you've tried your hand at everything at this point, practically. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for it, the chairman of uh, and president of, of Cantor Fitzgerald was um, went to college with me. Was on the tennis team at Haverford College, Howard Lutnick, and so when nine eleven happened, he'd hired a bunch of people from my college and so I knew I had four good friends who who died and a lot of other ones who lived. But I had just finished The Last Good Chance and gotten sort of all my revisions in and he had the idea of me coming in and writing something about it, not knowing what it would be at first because it was literally just a week after there and I, I sort of got thrown into going to funerals and kind of helping him out in the beginning. And then suddenly, you know, I, I realized I was the only person who was there talking to everyone. And it was a, this huge responsibility, but it, it needed to be done. And so, and just so listeners can get some context in case they might, you know, it might escape them. Like, can you just tell us who Howard Lutnick is and, and base, you know, the uh, Howard Lutnick, yeah, was at, at, in its thirties, took over Cantor Fitzgerald, which is the world's largest trader of bonds. And they were on the 111th through 115th floor of the North Tower. And when the plane struck, everybody who was in the Cantor Fitzgerald offices, 733 people, died. Not a single person got out. And in the 
uh, in the aftermath, within two days, they opened. They were like the New York Stock Exchange for bonds, and they had to open for business. And so the people who had survived, they had something like 300 people who were either on vacation or, uh, or just got in late that day, um, had to sort of go into the records. They made all these trades, $200 billion of trades on Monday, and they had to, had to hack into computers to get all the records for that. And they rebuilt the company on the fly as they were mourning their friends and as the news media descended in, including Bill O'Reilly playing a kind of really sinister role. And I was sort of in the middle of, of all this. I was sort of both talking to everybody and writing this thing, you know, that was, we had a pretty tight deadline. We wanted to get it out within a year. So I had these crazy 16-hour days of writing, and I got carpal tunnel and headaches. And I mean, the intensity of it was, was you know, overwhelming. So, um, and, and forgive me if my memory is bad, but is, was Howard was was he the guy that was like, you know, he he, un, un, in, in an unusual move, like was late to work that day. Or, yeah, he was taking his son to kindergarten. Right, and um, and so yeah, and all the guys they they all had that that these unique stories of why they didn't you know, they weren't there that day. Um, and he was the one who was on television afterwards, crying on yeah, television, right. and and became the sort of the. the the face of the tragedy. Um, but as a novelist, it was sort of being thrown into, you know, it's it like page 175 of this novel that's, you know, it's, it's spinning in so many different directions, you know, and, and trying to trying to write about, about sort of the, the families and the grief and the money aspect of it and the media aspect of it and the business aspect of it, which um, I didn't know anything about it, but I had, I tried to become an instant expert on bond markets and equities and sort of, you know, learn all the lingo and how things worked so that I could write about it lucidly. So, okay. So um, just like the, the, like the mechanics of how it happened. So nine 11 happens and you said within a week you were out there covering this and like doing book research. Like did you, did the book deal, uh, like how did that all go down? You had a book deal immediately or did you just decide to jump in and do this expecting that if you, you did, you know, the book, I would... jumped in and started to, to watch, to just tag along with him on his daily rounds as he, he was at first because of a sort of misunderstanding of, of how the families were going to get money, et cetera, and they were all furious at him. So I would go to meetings in hotel ballrooms while he was at the center of it, while people were sort of screaming and yelling at him. And um, it was quite surreal. And so basically just in diary form, like I was a fly on the wall, I was just, I had my, I was recording everything and talking to people along the way. And, and I would just write about everything that was happening, you know, as it was happening. And the interesting thing about the book is it's not written in retrospect. It's 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 up so it's it's written right from the center of the chaos, and so um, yeah. So it it, it it I I mean people say when they read it they they feel like they're right back. I don't know. That's a lot of people want to avoid that feeling, but but that's very very intense experience. Um, well, and it also it also I mean just to bring things full circle when it comes to like your. Uh, you know, initial forays into journalism and having that dream of being a foreign correspondent or being at the center of the action, like, uh, you know, recording history as it happens, like that would seem to qualify or, the, you know, this this book would seem it to. Did. It did. If I ever wanted to become a war correspondent, including there was, I mean, there's one day I really felt it, which I was at their new offices and there was a bomb threat. Um, and actually there was, there was, uh, there were bomb threats every day at their new office for like three weeks. Some, some disgruntled employee, um, supposedly at Random House, who was calling um, so that he could get off work every day with a bomb threat. But the first day, 
um, this was on Park Avenue, that I heard it. Um, I was one of the last people to leave, and there was a glass revolving elevator that was on their floor, and you needed, I guess, a security card to get out of it, and I was stuck in it, and there was nobody around. Finally, someone came by and got me through, and I had to, like, run down the fire escape. And I was thinking at that point, you know, about my, my desire to be a war correspondent or to be overseas. And I said, you know, I've, I've got it. I'm in it. I, mean, yeah. I am a war correspondent. Well, and, and having grown up in New York and then getting, you know, going back there in the immediate aftermath of 9-11 uh, must have been a shock to your senses. Yeah, it, it, and I, I think it's one of the reasons why I still write about New York is, is it intensified my relationship to the city because, as I said, the city was kind of an intimidating place when I grew up. I mean, it was sort of a scary place in some ways. And then it became, you know, a place of enormous sort of money, Trump money and, and, and sort of bravado for a while. And then after 9-11, it became this kind of vulnerable place. And being in New York right afterwards, I felt a lot of tenderness towards the city. It, it felt different. It felt like because it had been attacked. And, and there was a great sense of community in the city everywhere. You know, we would go out at night, and everyone was really nice to one another. Yeah, like where did that and, guy, where did, I mean, they, there was like the, there were all the jokes about like Armageddon sex. And, you know, I have friends who are married today who met like a week after 9-11 and like at some candlelight vigil in Los Angeles. And like, you know, people I were. I completely believe yeah, people were open. And, I, you know, it's funny, too, because I was, uh, you know, walking my dog, listening to a podcast uh, interview. Uh, it was like an old interview with David Letterman on Fresh Air. And then, uh, like, as a part of the show, they played um, his monologue in the show immediately, like the first show he did back after 9-11. And it brought me back, you know, because the country was really spinning and people were so emotional. And, like, there were all these open demonstrations of emotion and... Uh, it was a very strange time. Yeah, it, it, it was, and, and it very much, it, it sort of felt pre-technological almost. I mean, it just felt like, um, it, it felt more like a small town. You'd sort of walk around and make eye contact, and it, it seemed, uh, yeah, it, 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 there was this kind of openness and warmth. There was kind of sadness, um, but um, such a sense, I, you know, such a strong sense of being a New Yorker, or I had at that time. I mean, I had a strong sense of the bizarre, you know, it, it, being an American and being a New Yorker. Those things felt very important to me, you know, right in the aftermath. And so it's funny and I to, felt like I was at the right place. Well, no, but it's funny to be talking about something so horrible, you know, but then also to have like a sense of longing in, in our voices. You know, like, like uh, do you know what I'm saying? Like, it's like, God, things were so great in the immediate aftermath of that horrible tragedy. And. Um, you know, well, that's what makes me so angry now, you know, actually was how that was, that was squandered in a sense. I mean, I, the, the, the man who just mystifies me is Giuliani because he really, he had us all. He really, he, he conveyed a sense of, of, of New York in the beginning in such a way that, that seemed to me heroic. And then he turned into such a partisan hack so quickly after that, which it seemed like such a waste of, of, of what he had done. He had, he had gotten us all. We were all on his side, and he lost half of us or more than half of us afterwards by, by sort of making 9-11 the, the Republican mantra. Yeah, it was like there was so much goodwill. Like, I mean, talk about a squandered opportunity. Like, it really felt like there was a moment where, you know, the, I'm, not, I'm not suggesting that, like, you know, universal world peace could have been a, a achieved or something, but, like, I think there could have been, like, a dramatic positive, you know, dramatic positive steps made towards uh, a better world, and it feels like that was squandered. Yeah, a better world in a more unified country, more unified city. Yeah, I felt I felt like it was all, 
that was the moment. You know, you sort of think if, if you've ever been with a family where or a community of friends that always bicker, and then suddenly something happens, and then everybody is is acting in in the right way. Well, that seemed like there was that opportunity to sort of learn and and yeah, and I do feel like it was squandered. Um, well, you know, so. it, it's funny too. I was reading an interview you did, and you were talking about your work and. Um, you know, uh, like how you resist in the context of your fiction, you know, the, that you resist epiphany, you know, because they tend to be fleeting in, uh, in real life. And I think this is the case. And I mean, I've, I've experienced this in my own life and it usually is attached to something bad happening where, you know, all the bullshit sort of gets stripped away and you have clarity and you think to yourself like, okay, like I've, I've got it. I've realized something. I'm, I've made some sort of permanent shift in, in who I am. And it's depressing to say, but the, that that sense is fleeting. And then, you know, years go by and suddenly you fall back into old patterns or... Do you know what I'm saying? Like, I don't mean to say... I totally do. And I, it makes me think of the, the ending the, of the Flannery O'Connor story, A Good Day is Hard to Find, when the misfit is with the grandmother and at the end, and after he's, he's she's, she's actually become a decent human being and then he kills her. And then the, he, the uh, his mate says um, says you know she was a, a decent woman. He goes, yeah, she wouldn't have been so bad if there was someone to kill her every day. <laughs> 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 I can't remember what the line is, but it's to that effect that 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 she'd had that epiphany, but she'd probably need to have someone like him there every day in order for her to be a good person. Yeah, like how do we sustain epiphany? How do I? I need to like learn how to sustain epiphany. Like, I guess you just have to. I don't know. Keep reading good books. Uh, I don't know. You know what I'm saying? Like, it seems like they seem so slippery. It seems like such a shame. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's, or maybe you need to, to write from those moments and, and go back and read, you know, what you've said or, or thought and, and, you know, to have some sort of a reminder, put, put something over your, you know, on the wall next to you. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm like a tattoo but, uh, or whatever, something to make it permanent. But, um, I don't know. It's interesting. And it's interesting to think about, uh, in the context of nine eleven, and uh, you know, like it's, it's strange how like and and just hi- like history broadly, you know, so many different things happen, but it seems like as human beings, there's uh, uh, re- repeating cycles, you know. And I guess well, here, you know, you talk about a repeating cycle, and I think of New York, and then um, I think of the response that that Wall Streeters had to the financial crisis, where you would think that 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 okay, so they need to, they they were bailed out by by goodwill of the country, you know, and then they go right back to being the same selfish pricks they were before. And it's just astonishing rather than, and my feeling that, 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 that their reaction to it wasn't so much, I've got to mend my ways. It's like, oh my God, I got close to losing it all. I better acquire so much that <laughs> I could never be in that vulnerable position again, you know? And that, that was the epiphany they had. Yeah, so. yeah that, that's a good point. There are different kinds of epiphanies, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Every time you think, if you'd only have an epiphany, but... Yeah, I, I, uh, I, they, it, they, they may have had their epiphany, and it might not dovetail with what yours is. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so what are you working on now? You, it sounded you alluded to it earlier. Is it another novel? Yeah, it's a novel set in New York City in uh, in the year 1980, and it's a family that lives in the Dakota in the year that John Lennon is assassinated. Okay. So, um, and I grew up five blocks away, and I sort of feel like like. You know, and I was thinking about 9-11, sort of every 20 years, there's an act of violence, which for that generation is, is I mean, there's, there's, you know, 1941 in Pearl Harbor, and then there's 63 in the Kennedy assassination. There's 2001, you know, there's 9-11, and then I think for 
my generation, it's 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 the Lenin assassination is that sort of defining act of violence. Were you was that something that you had like you have physical memories of growing up in New York? Yeah, I mean, I grew up in New York City, and and I was so aware of them. They, I, I lived five blocks away from them, so I was always aware of of them living near me, and and um, uh, it's also about that neighborhood. It's not it's not really uh, about. I mean, he's he's in it, and it's really about. I I just sort of love that building and I love that building's history and I love the I love these great beautiful big buildings that were built on the Upper West Side there are pictures of it when the Dakota was built and it looks like farmland you know around it there was just nothing there and um, and and there's sort of the initial dream of creating this luxury apartment building with this great restaurant and the waiters and the heavy cutlery and and the sense of tradition you know and all these great people that have lived there um, I just, you know, I like that. And I also just like the, the sort of mixture of people on the Upper West Side and, you know, what that was like growing up, which is sort of the same way I guess I wrote my first book really about what my sense of upstate was. And this is sort of my, my more my, my sort of uh, sense of what, what the Upper West Side that I grew up in, what, what that place was like. So did you ever see Lennon when you were like a kid? Yeah, I, I saw him, you know, I guess a couple times when I was growing up, um, and uh, not enough. I would have liked to have seen him. <laughs> I mean, it, anybody who lived in the neighborhood, you always wanted to to spot the different people that lived near us. Um, but I was always sort of very, very aware of his presence. So, what, like, just yeah. walk in the streets? I mean, just like past him or something or something? Yeah, we went to the same. You know, he went to the Pioneer Grocery, which is where. Yeah, I mean, he was. He, he got out. Of, one of the things that he loved about New York City was um, was at a place that he could actually get out. And and in that building, the um, the Dakota is is. I guess the unwritten rule there is that you don't treat anybody like a celebrity, and everybody is they're just treated like you know kindly as neighbors. You know, and it's, there's not that that sort of sense of being gawked at. Um, and um, but it's amazing actually if you think well now it's tragic the, the lack of security there but um, that that yeah but how um, you got but that's the thing like you think about that with uh, people who are famous and um, I know you need security but I mean I, I want to say I remember reading about John Lennon and how he like famously didn't have bodyguards he didn't want to it, it would suck to have to move around with like security with you everywhere but I guess in this in this world maybe you need it you know I don't know. These days, I think people do a lot more than they did then, yeah. Mm. Seems depressing. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, <laughs> uh, it's really been fun talking with you. I appreciate you taking the time. Congratulations on um, you know, all the success and, and the good uh, reception that the collection has gotten, and I certainly wish you well with the new novel. Thanks so much, Brad. Yeah, it was a, a pleasure you know, talking to you. All right, there you have it. That's Tom Barbash. Go get his story collection. It is called Stay Up With Me. It's available now from Echo in paperback. You can find Tom on Twitter. His handle is at Tom Barbash. He's also on the Facebook. Thanks, as always, to the folks at Kill Rockstars for all the good music. Be sure to check out killrockstars.com. Uh, don't forget to go get that app, the free official Other People app. Sign up for premium. Access the full archives. It's the best way to listen. You can, you can hear old conversations with uh, authors like George Saunders, Tom Parada, Edward Dantica, David Shields, Tao Lin, Sheila Hetty, Kate Sambrino. Who else? Roxane Gay, Eden Lepucky. She has a new novel out. Buy it. She's getting screwed by Amazon. Buy Eden's book. It's called uh, California. While you buy uh, Tom's new uh, collection in paperback. So uh, get the app. That's what I mean to say. Get the Other People app. 
Sign up for premium. I need to win. I need to claim victory. <laughs> this is the greatest podcast in the world. You know what I'm saying? I can't even say that. Uh, you got to believe that, I guess. The Muhammad Ali thing. I don't fucking know. It's okay. I feel good about it. <laughs> There's lots of good ones. I don't know what to say. I'm overwhelmed when I think of how much content is out there and how to distinguish one's content from other content, what that would entail. I just got an offer, by the way, to ghostwrite. A, uh, just as I was doing this, I got an offer to ghostwrite via text uh, message a memoir for a now-retired NFL uh, football player. I don't think I can say any more than that in case I actually do this. But uh, that came through. And it's, and it's like the kind of person that you'd, you would like roll your eyes and be like, oh my God. Or at least, you know, I don't know. A big personality. Let's put it that way. Should I do this? <laughs> Maybe this could be part of my research into uh, the nature of comp you know, competition and, and how it functions in human beings. So thanks again. Uh, oh, wait, I forgot to do the uh, please remember. Let me get my list. Hang on a second. Please remember that Arturo Toscanini died of a stroke and that uh, Mary Bashkertsev died of consumption at 24. I don't even know who these people are. I'm uneducated. Robert Frost died of a pulmonary embolism while uh, enduring metastatic prostate cancer. Thanks again to Tom Barbash. Thanks uh, to you guys for listening. As always, I appreciate it. And uh, I'll be back in a, in a few days with another episode of uh, this show, the greatest show in the world, the number one literary podcast in the Milky Way. <laughs> it's the greatest of all time. It's destined for, uh, it's legendary. This is the stuff of literary legend. So if you're a biographer, get in line. Okay. Oh my god. <laughs>